We are continuing on in our series in the Psalms, reading from Psalm 56 today, beginning in verse 1. It's page 476 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker opposes me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, in whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. I hope that you love the Psalms. I hope that you love the fact that they so dramatically display the emotions that we as people have. In verse 9 or verse 8, it says there, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I mean, he is wrenching emotionally as he writes these words. And the context of this particular psalm is David fleeing Saul at one of the lowest points in that fleeing mode. The context of this particular time, as best can be determined, is that David is is running, Saul is pursuing him and wants to put him to death because he sees him as a threat to his kingdom and so he wants to snuff out his life. And David has gone to Nob, which is the town of many priests and the priest Ahimelech was the chief priest of those priests in that particular town. And sometime following David's passing through Nob, Saul heard that he was there and he heard about Ahimelech and how they had given sanctuary to him there and had been kind to him there. And the kind of fury that Saul had was he went then to Nob and he killed some 88 priests and all of their family in retribution to the fact that David had been in their city. That's the kind of fury that was pursuing David. That's the kind of person he knew Saul to be. And so he left Nob and he went to Gath. And in Gath, um, David was alone. You'll read later as he was going from Gath to um, Adulium that he had 400 men with him, that when he came to the cave where 
it's pretty familiar to lots of people of Scripture where David was in that cave. At that point, he had 400 people around him to, to be a bit of an army and a bit of a protection. He had kindred um, within that number, so there was a sense in which there were people and he could interact with people and he had a sense of an army that could protect him. But when he was at Gath, there was none of that. That was in the process of getting there to the cave and collecting all of that army. And when David got to Gath, which, by the way, is a Philistine city that Goliath was from, and before he had left Ahimelech in the city there of Nob, Ahimelech had given David Goliath's sword, which was massive. And certainly, as David came into the arena of Gath and in that vicinity, the people around there must have known that sword. And they knew that David, David was the one who had killed Goliath. In fact, they were chanting that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed um, many more. And as they chanted those, those words, the people that David had killed... The people that David had, had defeated in battle, many of their names were names that originated in that city. So you begin to see the desperation of David. He had no place else to go. And so he flees to the very city that would seem to be more dangerous than what he'd come out of because of the way he had conquered their armies and he had come against them. And so in all of that, Certainly it talks about tears in a bottle and the fact that he'd wept much and his heart was broken and uh, all of those emotions were wrenching in David. But certainly we have to understand David was absolutely alone there. There wasn't an army around him. He was by himself and he was desperate. To go there, he had to be incredibly desperate to go to that city, to go to that region he really probably was near despair. He was near despair of of not knowing what to do, not knowing where to go. Certainly, he was afraid. We know he was afraid because when they began to chant that uh, Saul had killed some, but David had killed many more, fear struck David, struck him so much that when he was there, he began to act as though he was out of his mind so that, that the king might just decide to just not kill him. Not to kill him because he was out of his mind. And in fact, that's what did happen. Now that's what we, that's what we find, and that's where we find David when he begins to write verses 1 to 4. So go back to chapter, um, or verse 1 of Psalm 56 and read this. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? You've got to feel the emotion if you're really going to understand what David was acknowledging there and where his hope was and where his trust and his eyes were focused so that he could come against that fear 
and that desperate aloneness that he felt in that circumstance. What I want to do is I want to look at where his eyes went and where his eyes went were to the word. It says, in God whose word I praise, in the trustworthiness of the word of God, what God had spoken to David, that's what he trusted. And that's the thing that David said brought him out of his fears, out of his despair. It's the place he landed. And probably also where his mind was when he said, in your word I trust, was in the words of the prophet Samuel, the other part of the story, the part of the story that began a long time before this incident. In fact, the part of the story that really got him in trouble now. The promise that God gave through the prophet Samuel to David was the very reason that Saul was pursuing him here and after him because he was a threat to his throne. And the promise that Samuel had given to David was, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you, which was David. Remember when Samuel went to the sons of Jesse? All of those sons were paraded before him. And surely he thought the firstborn would be it. At least the secondborn and thirdborn and so on. And then at the end he says, is there no one else? And Jesse says, well, there is another. There is another. And it was David. And he brought David in. And David was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. It was that promise that most assuredly must have been in David's mind when he said, in whose word I praise, in whose word I trust. Because if Saul were to get him, If Saul, in fact, were to kill him, that promise couldn't take place. It couldn't be fulfilled. And so David was trusting. He was trusting the word of God. The word that came from God through the prophet Samuel. So now what I want to do for the next few minutes is I just want to talk about what what do we learn? What do we learn from David in Psalm 56 about that, about trusting God's word to us? What do we learn about the word, this word right here? First thing I think we learn is we must learn that we must live by the word of God. We must live by the word of God alone. That's, that's our life if we're believers. If today you profess Jesus Christ, if today you profess that he is your savior, when you sang those songs today, before the throne my surety stands, before the throne my surety stands, if that resonates with you, that he is your surety, then you must live by the word of God. It It is the means by which God has given us to perpetuate that life that has begun and caused you to come to life in Christ. Now, digress with me for a minute just for this point. David, you see, was a, was a type of Christ. In other words, all through the Old Testament, there are, there are personalities that are raised up that, that, uh, they would say are types of Christ, are, are certainly a flawed type, not, not the Christ, but people were raised up to, to, to save God's people in, in those times. Time after time they were raised up and they were, they become types of Christ. They become pictures of what is to come. And so the, the people who, who would 
opened this book to us, people like Don Carson in my Sunday school class this morning, as we're walking through that whole big forest view of what Scripture is over these next weeks, um, he would certainly say David was a type of Christ. Now, certainly flawed, not, not perfect, but David was one who trusted the Word. We also find that the fulfillment of that type of Christ, David, the true Christ, the true Messiah, Jesus as well, understood the importance of the word. As he went out into the wilderness, as he was tempted by the devil, after he had been, been with John the Baptist, and, and Satan began to tempt him, he tempted him in three different ways. And every time Jesus came back with the word that it has been said or it has been written, and the first temptation was that he would take the, turn the stones to bread. He was tempted because he was hungry. He'd been 40 days in, in the wilderness and hadn't eaten and, and was hungry. And he was tempted by Satan to turn the stones to bread so that he could satisfy the insatiable hunger that he had. And Jesus replies back. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. Before he said that, he said, though, it is written. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. We must, if we're going to, to persevere in righteousness, if we're going to live out this life of faith, we must learn to live by the word of God. We must learn to rest in the promises of God. We need our Bibles. We need them. I, I said this a few weeks ago, and it comes up periodically in the Psalms, but, but we need them. And I said then, I say it again because we have different people at different times, but um, uh, you, need, you need to have this book. Now, I understand that today in our electronic age, you may have it on a, on a phone or on some other kind of digital device, and that's fine. I mean, that's, that's okay. But use it. Use it. Make it precious to you. Is it precious to you? I'm old-fashioned. I still like to have the book. And, And you can mark it. And you can write in the, in the margins of it. When I became a Christian in 1973, one of the first things that was given to me was a New Testament. And, and I, I began to devour that New Testament. I, I couldn't get enough of reading the Scripture as it started to make sense to me, as it started to open up to me. I, I remember in fourth or fifth grade, um, the, one of the first Bibles I had ever really had that was my own was one of the Gideon New Testaments. It was a, it was a green one. I told this story before, but I, I liked it so much I traded for three or four or five others on the way home from school. So I had a whole collection of them, and, and I tried to read them. I tried to begin and read it and, and wanted to, but I just I couldn't. I couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense. But when, when I came to Christ, one of the, the, the hungers that God put into my life was the Word, the, the Scripture, to, to begin to read it and, 
and see the promises of God. So as life dwells in us, we, we need to have the word. And if you feel like that life has dulled a bit, it, it, it is probably because your time in the word has dulled and the promises of God has dulled. And if you would say it's dulled, I'd, I'd admonish you to get back to the word and, and realize that that is where life comes. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. And it's not talking about physical life. It's talking about spiritual life. We have to have the word. So we learned that, I think, that, that David trusted in the word. And it was different for him than us. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But number two, and I say different in the sense that he didn't have access to the whole story. The second thing that we learn is that we must, we must get our Bibles right. We must get the promises right. Um, great damage, I think, has been done in, in the church world at times where, where people have not gotten it right. And so it's incredibly important. And I think one of the reasons that we don't get it right is because, as I said earlier, theology has been downplayed. We, we haven't let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in that first half that I talked about this morning where, where theology, we let it build our view of who God is. We don't, we don't bring our view of God there, but we let it be God's view and it comes to us. We begin to learn what God is and who he is. That's what theology is. It just means, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? When, when I was growing up, I didn't have a Bible. And, and I've shared this as well, but my theology was what I learned one day at the kitchen counter. I still remember the moment. I still remember um, getting in trouble in that moment there in, in the house. And, and I remember the trouble, as I, as I recall it, as I put a piece of, they'd just come out with invisible tape. That's how old I am. And I put it on the counter. And I remember my dad was not very happy with me that I did that. But I also remember then he... I don't know how the the segue came, but then he began to tell me about his theology about God. And his theology about God was that when we're born, it's a struggle, but it's better. And so when we die, it's a struggle, but it's better. That was my theology. That's what I believed about God for much of my early years. Um, It wasn't informed by the Word. It wasn't informed by this. It, it was a soundbite. And, and too often we live by soundbites. We, we don't ask the hard questions of Scripture. Now, again, I, I, as I said in the prayer time, it's, it's not all about that. Because if that's all you do, if all letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly is, is head knowledge about who God is, that'll lead to pride. That'll lead to a puffed-up spirit. That, that will not really do you much good. It'll actually do you more harm than good. But to combine both, where we, we, we let the word of Christ rich, dwell in us richly, we get a proper view of God and let that change us in the ways that it talked about in Colossians this morning. When those two things come together, it's wonderful. If you get one without the other, you get theology without the second half of of how it changes us, you, you get puffed up and you get haughty. If you get the second without the first, you get a faulty view of God and you just talk about loving one another, you get sentimentality that doesn't help you either. 
And both of those are because we get sound bites. We, we really don't get a constant understanding of what the Bible teaches. Again, I, this is a bit of a commercial this morning, and, and we have another class that's equally as good to be a part of, but the one that I'm teaching by D.A. Carson, and we just began it, is, is talking about how this book ties together. It's, it's getting the view from down and seeing the whole forest instead of getting lost in the trees first. Once you get the forest view, once you, you get the proper understanding, then you can begin to understand the individual trees better. And that's what we need. We don't, we don't just need sound bites. And if all you do is you don't see the big picture of Scripture and you get down in the trees, the danger is you'll get off into tangents and, and you won't allow one passage to balance another in Scripture and give understanding of another and, and that will get you in trouble. But both of those things are dangerous. We must get the Bible right. And look at verse 9 of this text. I think here we find... When what what really this Bible is about, and 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 we can see what David was talking about in verse nine. It says, "Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call." This I know that God is for me. David knew that God was for him. He knew that the promise he had from God said, "God is for me. He's he's not against me." That's really the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that for all who will embrace it, all who will embrace the Messiah, all who will take him to be the treasure of their life, that he is for them. And it also tells why he's for them. There's people out there who think God is for them, and they don't have a clue why. They They don't have any theology under it. Somebody just told them that God loves them. And they have no understanding of, of, of the rest of God's attributes. You have to have it all together. And, and David had it all together. He understood God was for him and why God was for him because of the promises of the word. Getting the promise right that he was to be a king. And in fact, beyond that, that his heir would always be on the throne. But there always be, would be his heir who ultimately became Jesus Christ, his heir. Gospel promise. We, we need to get it right. The gospel promise to us that God is for us. He's a God who does three things. We talk about this often in our church, but he, he justifies us. That's what the gospel says. He, find, he makes a way that we can be justified, that our sins can be forgiven, that his holiness can be upheld, and he can declare us not guilty and not be guilty of injustice himself. That's what justification is about. But it's more than that. What the gospel promise that God is for me is that not only does he justify us, but then he begins to sanctify us. He begins to take our lives and begins to literally make them more and more righteous. Never ultimately righteous, never to the point where they can throw off Christ and say his work isn't necessary because God has made me so righteous that I can stand in my own stead. Never that, but he does begin to actually come to dwell in us and sanctify us. His, his goal, in fact, is to sanctify us. And one day, the goal of the gospel, the, the 
ultimate of God being for me is that we will be glorified, that one day we will be made absolutely perfect, fully sanctified, and in his presence forever. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the seed of the promise here that David understood. He didn't understand how it all came together. He didn't understand all the manifestations of it, but he certainly he certainly had the heart of it that God is for me. That's the blessing and the promise of the gospel that he can, in fact, be for a people and not violate his justice. And it all has to do with his son. Now, what I want to do here for just a minute is I want to I want to talk about what that means. What does it mean that God is for us? What does it mean that the gospel promise is justification, sanctification, glorification? What does that have to do with making sure we get the promises right and correct? It has much to do with that concerning expectations about, well, now I've begun this life of faith. What, what should happen? What should it look like? What, what should go on in my life? I would say to you what should go on in your life what, what the primary promise of the gospel is that he is going to sanctify his people. Those that he's justified, he's going to sanctify. He's going to conform them more and more to the image of the Son. That is absolutely a promise of Scripture. It is absolutely a promise. Now, let me, let me diverge just a little bit. Look at verse 4 and look later, a little bit later. It says the same kind of thing. But in verse 4, it says... What can flesh do to me? Verse 11, it says, What can man do to me? God is for him. So what can, what can man do to him? In his sense, in his promise, ultimately he's saying that Saul cannot physically kill him. That's what he's trusting in. That's what he's relying upon, the promise of God, because if Saul kills him, It's over. Can't be king. His heir won't forever be on the throne. It'll be over. His lineage will be dead. And so for him, it is physically that that man can't kill him. But I think, again, that's why I used the illustration a little earlier, if you can stay with me, why he's a type of Christ. He's not the ultimate. And the promise that Jesus gives us in the New Testament through the writer of the book of Hebrews, is the same promise. He carries this promise over into Hebrews. And in Hebrews, we get the same promise. If you turn there, if not, listen. Just listen to Hebrews chapter 13. It says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, what can man do to me? Actually, he can kill him. Not David, because the promise was that David would be on the throne and his heir would be on the throne. So David got that promise right. But I think when you take that promise now into a New Testament perspective, don't don't get it wrong. Don't get it the same promise that David was given. It is the same wording of the promise, but the fulfillment of it is different. I think, again, what can mere man do to me? Really what David was saying, man can't do anything that God doesn't purpose to have happen. God doesn't, man can't do anything that God doesn't purpose to have happen, and God has purpose for David to live. But that doesn't mean for everybody else that's the same fulfillment of the promise. 
when it says, what can man do to me? God can, or man can kill us. In fact, Jesus is not coming back until when? Till the full number of the martyrs have come in. In other words, some of us think, well, when is Jesus going to return? He's promised to return. Why hasn't he fulfilled it? Because the last martyr has not died. So it can't mean that man can't kill us physically. So what does it mean? In fact, if you read in the context of this, it's he's saying up earlier in chapter 13 of Hebrews, um, remember those who are in prison, remember those who are mistreated. It doesn't in this text say, remember those who have been killed, but certainly it's not an easy go, is it? Man is doing some hard things. He's put, he's put him in prison. Man has mistreated him. But he can't do anything that God doesn't purpose. And what does he purpose? He purposed to conform us to the image of his son. So all of those things can't thwart God's purpose of that. Last week, I, I, I referenced a text, and I want to go back to it again this morning in Luke um, chapter 21. It's important, I think, to, to see it again, particularly if you weren't here, but again, the same idea, the same idea. What can man do to me? What can he do? In Luke chapter 21, um, we find there in that particular text this. Um, it, it gives a description beginning in verse 10. It says, Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate before on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. He's warning the believers. He's warning the followers of Christ. Some of you will be put to death. Now, this is, this is what I pointed out last week, which... Is incredible. Many of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. You'll be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Why? Because God's purpose for his people is that they would be justified that they would be sanctified and ultimately glorified and live with him forever. They will not ultimately perish. They may experience some difficult times. That's why it's important when you look at the promises, be careful. Be careful to get the promise right. The promise is that God will save a people and he will save it by justifying them, sanctifying them, and glorifying them and they ultimately will not have a hair on their head perish eternally. But that doesn't mean that in this broken world that difficulty doesn't come to us. But again, nothing will come to us. Nothing will come to us but by the purposed hand of God. And he will use it to conform us to the image of his son. That's what those promises, I believe, mean to us today.
In my Sunday school class, the last quarter, one of the things we talked about and looked at were the prayers of Paul. You want to look at the purposes of God for his people, read the prayers of Paul. Read the way Paul prayed for people like us in his day. And this is one of the ways he prayed. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole soul, uh, whole soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. What will he do? He will sanctify you wholly. He will produce godliness in your life until the moment at which he decides that you're ready to come home. He will glorify you and not a hair on your head will perish. Nothing will come to you that surprises God. Last week, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's never caught off guard. He's always accomplishing, working out his purposes. And his purpose is to do that. His purpose is to conform us more and more to the image of his son. So I say again this morning, it's incredibly important that we get the promises correct. We get them correct. Promises like this. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? I mean, we could perish. We could be killed. They were killed. What does it mean that all of your needs? Well, ultimately, the need isn't to live physically. If it were, that would violate the promise, wouldn't it? Our need isn't to live physically. Our need is to be conformed to the image of his son. And what I believe promises like that say to us in the full orb context of what is revealed to us in scripture, not in sound bites. You don't get this in sound bites. We'll twist sound bites to our own thinking, to our own desires. When you get the full orb teaching of, of, of the scriptures and of the New Testament, It says that God will give you all the grace you need in every circumstance to live for his glory. That's what it means. Your need is to live for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, live for the glory of God. So whether you live or whether you die, our mandate is to live for his glory and God will give us all we need, all we need, to live for his glory. You see, that's how we need to see the promises. We, we, we won't get that if it has to do with sound bites. The third thing is we must hear it. We must hear the word on a regular basis. You have to hear it regularly. The scripture says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You have to hear the gospel and the proper gospel promise Again and again and again. You need to hear it here. You need to hear it every day in your life. On Monday through Saturday. You need to hear the gospel. You understand the gospel promise. You need to get it correct. Otherwise, if you're not hearing it, you're going to hear other voices and other words that will lead you in difficult and wrong places. And then finally, we must have it available in time of need. We must have it available. We must have that promise available. David obviously had the promise available. He knew that promise frontwards and backwards. He was resting on that promise that God had given him. 
We need to have the promises. We need to memorize the promises. You need to have scripture available that it comes to your mind in the midst of circumstances of life. Um, one person has said that he had never, he's never met a weak Christian who memorized scripture. And he's never met a strong one who didn't. We have to memorize it. We need to know it. So it's readily available to us in the time of need. Um, there's an app. I, I just want to give a bit of a commercial here to you who, who like the, the uh, electronic version of maybe the Bible or whatever on your phone or iPad or computer or whatever. There, there is an app now that is called a Fighter Verse app. That's, if you look it up, you go to wherever you go to get your apps, whatever version of phone you have, and, and you just type in Fighter Verses, Desiring God, Fighter Verses you will get a fighter verse app. It'll give you a verse a week you can, for you to, to memorize. And they're fighter verses. They're verses that, that you need to have readily available that get the promises correctly and help you to fight the fight of faith. Um, I would encourage you. We'll talk more about that even as we go on uh, in the next weeks. But you, you would benefit from that. Test it. See, see what is there. Look at it. Now let me close. I need to close. And, and this is how I want to close this morning. All of us think, man, it would have been something to have a prophet come to us and speak the word. A prophet to come and give a word like David got. That, that would be amazing. It would, be, it would, it would not have been so, no, any small thing to have Samuel come and do what he did. And David trusted that word. But... It's better today, folks. It's better now than it ever was then. It's better to have what we have than what David had. David didn't see the full picture. He didn't see why it was important to have an heir on the throne forever. In fact, he didn't even understand how an heir could be on the throne forever. You see, David didn't understand the full picture of what was going on. He only had a portion of it. But it's amazing how he responded. And that's what I'd like you to look at in Psalm 56 as we close this morning. The very last verses of that particular psalm this morning say this. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offering to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. He was, again, talking about physical death. But, but, but we today understand it was pointing toward a different kind of death, eternal death. And, and you have rescued and delivered my soul from eternal death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before my God in the light of life. In the light of life. Jesus talked about that as well. In John chapter 8, And I think I pulled out my place that I had it here. Um, Listen to what he says. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. David prayed about the light of life. The New Testament writer takes that over and has Jesus use the same terminology. Jesus uses the same terminology, the word, the light of life.
it's better. It's better because we have more light and fuller light and fuller revelation. And, and I hope would see how much, how much we need this word, this light of life. I, I hope this morning, I hope one of the resolutions that, that you may make this morning, if, if you've been lax in the word, if you haven't made it central to, to your life of faith, that, that God would just encourage you back to it. We, we need to have the word. We can't live effectively without the word and the promises. May God help us. And even as we sing this morning, I pray that we're praying as well. Let's stand and sing together as we close. Prepare our hearts, O God. Help us to receive. Break the hard and stony ground. Help our unbelief. Plant your word down deep in us. Cause it to bear fruit Open up our ears to hear Come lead us in your truth Verse 2 Your word is living light Upon our darkened eyes Guards us through temptation, makes the simple wise. Your word is food for famished ones, freedom for the slave, riches for the needy soul. Come speak to us today, show us Christ, show us Christ, oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your Until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us as David to to live by the light of life. By the light of Christ, who is that life and is that light. The one who, the scripture says, is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, I pray that you will put a hunger in our hearts for your word and to know it and to stand on it. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name.
Amen. God bless you.